Hey, I am Mustafa Sharif. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I'm looking forward to this episode. It's going to be super interesting. Many topics to talk about. We're going to talk about Stipo. I'll talk about European placemaking network. I have the pleasure to welcome Hans to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome, Hans. Thank you very much. And uh, wonderful to be here. My pleasure. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Just had a, a funny weekend of uh, uh, online birthday celebrations. <laughs> so we're all <laughs> adapting, I guess. Yes, uh, happy we're birthday. We're trying to make the best of it. Thank you very much. And how is it going with uh, your work during these days? Um, luckily, I, I feel blessed, you know, because our work is continuing mostly. Um, and I, of course, see a lot of people around me and, and in the world who cannot continue the work. So that is the first thing to be really, really thankful for. Um, we're working a lot with uh, municipalities, communities who want to continue uh, working on the projects that we've started. Of course, the, you need to be more creative nowadays to still have the same type of co-creation uh, and uh, to hear as many voices and not just to restrict yourselves to the, the, the online networks that you have already. We find it super important to be very diverse in the way we uh, organize our co-creation with communities. And um, so that's where you need to be more creative nowadays. And how is it going when you're doing it digitally? Is it the same feeling? No, no, of course not. No, no, I, I, I genuinely, and I think a lot of us prefer to pe meet people in person. However, we've seen that now, of course, everybody kind of understands and accepts uh, the fact that it is like this and uh, it does generate a new uh, creativity as well. So for instance, we're working in a, in a neighborhood in Utrecht, which is one of the lower income neighborhoods and also one of the uh, least healthy neighborhoods in Utrecht. And this is what we want to help improve uh, in combination with the green infrastructure of the neighborhood. Um, by involving and including the different groups who are living there and uh, more into the public space. And, um, well, normally we would have placed our caravan in the neighborhood and, and slept there because then you, you have the experience that you will see a whole different type of people coming to you than when you would organize something in a formal uh, room of the city. Um, so... Uh, we cannot do that right now, but for instance, we've shifted to um, uh, distributing door-to-door -door information, um, uh, things that children can, uh, uh, you know, cut out uh, things in, on the put on the map. But we also uh, we've had the whole neighborhood designed in Minecraft as well. So we're having wow. the, the the boys and girls from the neighborhood play on Minecraft and redesign their own environment in a, in a digital way, and then we've included questions for them to include their parents uh, doing so. So hopefully, you know, you need, you need to be creative like this as well, uh, I guess. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I guess also there are many things to learn, especially to use post-corona. So it's a good moment to, to be creative and explore different methods. Yeah, and if anything, people are more and more aware, of course, that uh, it's so important to have social networks in your own neighborhood. And I think uh, you know, we're involved in public space and, and placemaking. You can read these as uh, very physical uh, things to do, you know, ch changing the physical environment. But maybe the most important aspect of placemaking, I think, is building the social networks and building the social capital. And, and everybody more than ever realizes how important it is that if you are now, if, if you, you may not even have corona, but you, you may, you know, just uh, develop a, a flu. 
you're not allowed to go to the supermarket now you need to rely on your neighbor to do the shopping for you um so it's uh, really down to the the social neighborhood networks right now well hans you're our storyteller for this episode so how would you like to introduce yourself and please tell us what are you passionate about by profession and, and training i'm an urban planner but i i would say i'm a i just love people and i love cities um, I love the public qualities of cities and I love to work on the public qualities of, of cities. Um, probably something to do with my childhood trauma. When I was six years old, my parents abducted me to a small town uh, to live, move there. And I was longing back to the, to the big city since. Um, uh, I, I like the way cities challenge you as a person and uh, the interaction, the diversity of cities. Um, and um, yeah, this is what I'm, I've tried to make my work of and, and trying to um, help recreate cities in a way that uh, it's done with uh, all the voices at the table. And it's done in a very, in the, in the most sustainable way possible. So already when you were a child, you fall in love with this human scale, the multi-layer city, public spaces. I don't think when I was six years old, I had those words. <laughs> <laughs> I probably felt it. Uh, I probably felt that I, 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 I love, you know, being among people. And I had that feeling much less in a, in a smaller town, to be honest. So, but that, that's, you know, that's just very strictly personal because I, I think you can do placemaking in small villages as well. And, and uh, it's, it's probably more important uh, anywhere else. So, but um, yeah, uh, I was always very involved. Um, and I, I like to, to not just work for the sake of working. I like to hopefully contribute something meaningful uh, and, and do that with a lot of people like-minded as well. Yes. And how was when you started this TIPO? What was the background? And when did you start it? Yeah, I'm one of the founding partners. Well, we, we already started back in the 80s. And uh, if you right now look a little bit at what was built in the 80s, um, in the Netherlands, in, in Europe, throughout the world, actually. Um, maybe you can understand that we got really, really angry about the poor quality being provided back then, and, and we felt we needed to provide an alternative. Um, some of the neighborhoods developed in the 80s were called sustainable because the Club of Rome had just come out with their first reports that we are running out of resources on this planet. Um, which led to the first experiments, which was very good. I mean, they were using rainwater to flush the toilets with and avoiding the use of tropical hardwood, which was a very noble thing to do. But then if you look at those neighborhoods, they were just terrible as hell. And we thought this is not going to be sustainable because we're probably going to be tearing them down 30, 40 years from now. And we want to help create areas that the users are happy with, not only right after delivery, but also hopefully 50, 100, 200, 300 years from now, because that's true sustainability in our view. So we, we wanted to <clears throat> find out what is, the, what is this uh, broader notion of sustainability really, um, and started researching the, the uh, characteristics of uh, neighborhoods and cities, districts that have proven to be long lasting uh, through the decades, through the centuries even. Um, and use that as a fundament for our thinking on, on how, to, how to redevelop uh, areas and cities. Back in the 80s, when you were telling, okay, we want to create sustainable neighborhoods, sustainable cities, how was the reaction? Because now it's something obvious, okay, sustainable, smart city, but back in the days, I, I believe it was hard to tell someone, human scale, sustainable city. 
yeah, we had to fight for it more back then, I think. Yeah, you kind of presumed right now that it would be easier now. There is more awareness, I would say, of human skill, of quality of public space, et cetera, et cetera. It's more in the debates nowadays. But if you look at the majority of what's being built in the world, we're still very much losing the battle. And maybe even more so than uh, in the 80s, because the scale of development has gone up. The industrialization of development has gone up. Uh, the international flows of capital have gone up. So the mechanisms working against human skill uh, have increased uh, since the 80s as well. So we need to work harder than ever, I think, with all of us. We need all of us in this uh, yes, to, to make truly sustainable cities and, and not just do one thing about sustainability. You know, we're always running behind that one thing that is right now it's circular cities. You know, we're devoting all our energy into that, which is very noble again. But we should really do this from a much broader perspective of the social sustainability of the the, the quality of cities, the, the soul of the place, the quality of public space, the, the ownership, the co-ownership, the co-creation, etc. And what is your reflection about that? Sometimes projects focusing on one aspect of the, let's say, just on the ecological aspect or some of them of the social. Do you believe we should really focus on one aspect or we should always think of the three sustainability aspects, economical, ecological and social and, yep every every project is unique and has its own challenges but we always try to try to be involved in projects in a, in a very integrated way uh, which is also why in our team uh, we have a team that is i'm an urban planner we have uh, several other urban planners but we also have a sociologist a psychologist uh, uh, even anthropologist people with more of an economic background. We have people with a heritage background, uh, urban designers. So uh, a lot of the elements that you that you need to make a complete city. And um, now we, I, I think we actively try to avoid just to narrow it down to a single focus because um, the city cannot be narrowed down to a single focus because the cities, cities are complex and we should rather embrace, embrace that complexity to its full extent than to think that we can just take out one aspect of it. Yeah. How is it the, the journey that you're as an urban planner, but in the same group, you work with different professions on the same project? It's, you know, we love it because the more complex it gets, the, the more we like it, actually. Um, but you have, kind of have to have that attitude because it means that uh, uh, the whole project and the program or uh, how do you want to call it becomes totally unpredictable. Uh, but we like unpredictable. We like surprises. We like to, to have outcomes that we would have never thought that we would be working on. Uh, so we, we like to uh, set up networks and, and programs in a way that they will bring a lot of uh, unexpected surprises uh, along the way. I think that's the whole spirit of technical urbanism, of placemaking, of being more iterative, of a more organic approach. The more people you work with, the higher your quality of ideas will be. Uh, because you will just, you know, we know from creativity theory that creative people don't necessarily have better ideas, have more ideas. Um, and if you apply that to an urban planning process, you need to make sure you have a lot of ideas and then you select the winning ideas from them. You, you don't go for the average of them, you select the winning ideas of, of them. I think that's the, the, the good process of urban development, really. Yes, I agree with you, especially as an urban planner and working with city development, you need to have this wide horizon to, to see what's going on and what are the different interests and aspects. You started a placemaking Europe. Is it something related to placemaking X network? or there are two different things? 
Yeah, uh, no, they're, they're, they're like brothers and sisters, I would say, or uh, uh, very related. Um, I think uh, for 10 years now, uh, already since we started our uh, city at eye level program, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, we've been part of the global advocacy for this, uh, for more human scale in our cities. And I think placemaking is a very important element of it. Uh, there's a lot of things I really, really love about the body of knowledge that has been developed for placemaking over the past 40 years and is still under development, right? Because we're still very much learning how to do this. Um, there are some crucial elements that are really different from uh, the way things were done traditionally and uh, which are really crucial and, and vital, I think, for this idea of a truly true sustainable development. Uh, and yeah, and, and a part of that is that uh, we've always worked together with projects for public spaces and uh, then later um, a project for public spaces is now maybe focusing a bit more on uh, their, their consultancy work and, and on the US. And the international advocacy is done more by placemaking X that came out of it. Um, so uh, we work together with them. And I think the way, in a certain way, placemaking X is an example for, for placemaking Europe. Placemaking Europe is an example for placemaking X, um, similar to how we're learning from all the other regional networks uh, as well. Yes. And actually, you're... personally, I'm now also on the interim board of placemaking X uh, uh, to. to you know, uh, uh, bring it to the next uh, phase. Yes. And what is the next phase? Do you, do you have any plans for the or vision? The next uh, step? For placemaking Europe or for placemaking X? Placemaking Europe. For placemaking Europe, I think it's, we've, we've grown more or less organically and through the use of uh, Facebook, social media, and of course our conferences to a very active network of 2,800 people by now all throughout Europe. And it's really wonderful. If you post something now on the Facebook group, you'll get 20 answers from all corners of Europe uh, and, and other parts of the world uh, by the end of the week. Uh, so it's a, it's a really highly active network where people dare to ask and learn from each other. Um, but we feel that we need to uh, scale up more. Uh, we need to professionalize the organization uh, because we re rely too much on uh, the voluntary hours uh, right now. Um, and we feel we, we, we all feel that we want to take the step to make placemaking more part of the system uh, and, and drive more towards uh, systemic change. Um, and by that, I mean, for instance, if you look at the area development process, um, then right now, very often, placemaking is something considered you should do as, uh, as uh, something you should do at the beginning or the end of the process. Whereas we think it should be part of the entire process because the way you design your buildings, the way you design your streets, uh, very much determine the amount of human skill you will get. And this is not something that you should just only repair with doing some placemaking afterwards if things have gone bad, if you know what I mean. You, you want to be at the heart of the process. So Yes, exactly. Um, another way is that uh, we feel that um, uh, more and more uh, cities are learning how to, you know, a lot of cities have systems for the public spaces that mean that they're doing the same thing everywhere and they're standardizing because it's more efficient, which is understandable because they need to be cost efficient, of course, they yes, work with yes. public money, but placemaking and working with communities make, means making exceptions to the rules. So. Uh, one of the big questions is how can you open up these these top-down systems for tapping into the bottom-up uh, energy in your city and, and for those two to work together in a productive way, uh, which is what we call creative bureaucracy, 
um, which is uh, again something we're working on with uh, placemaking Europe very much. And I think, for instance, we are, we're also noticing that um, that placemaking initiatives are uh, scaling up and they're um, are getting to a point sometimes where they need a different financial infrastructure. So I think we need to start building and providing a different financial infrastructure, which is something we are doing in our own practice in Utrecht right now in the province of Utrecht by having a placemaking investment fund. But we think that a, such a fund should actually grow to a more national and possibly even a European uh, funding structure for, for placemaking initiatives. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, you just mentioned that uh, City is trying to, how to say, let's say not really copy the, the different uh, project, but try to make it uh, cost efficient. So does it mean placemaking costs a lot? If you look at it from a point of view of the system world, where uh, everything is repetitive, and, uh, repeated uh, and, and standardized as much as possible, then you might say uh, it costs a lot. So from coming from that perspective, yes. Um, if you look at the social values, if you look at the, the, the possible values that lie in placemaking, both the more uh, indirect and the more direct values as well. So we can even talk about prop actual property value. Uh, I think the benefits uh, outweigh, greatly outweigh the, the relatively small investments that you need to make for placemaking. And I think we're also seeing this in the debate about how placemaking is sometimes causing gentrification um, because that means a lot of value is created and then the, the people who originally started the process are being driven from uh, the success. Um, so we need new systems to, to tap into those mechanisms uh, and to, to reinvest uh, some of those profits back into the, the, the community for placemaking in a more sustainable way. Um, yeah. But, but who, who should be the, the responsible for placemaking? Is it, is it the municipality, the placemakers? I mean, I believe it's a co-collaboration, but there should be someone responsible for this. Or what do you what do you think? I think the 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 way our thinking goes is that basically anybody can and should be a placemaking, uh, whether you are working for a city government, whether you're working for a real estate developer, whether you're working for a design company, or whether you're an, an, a bottom-up initiative from the from the neighborhood. Um, and um, we don't believe that uh, cities can be built in a top-down way solely, or they can, but they are, tend to be very clinical and boring and uninviting and uh, not very sustainable as well. Um, we don't think either that you can build a city entirely from a bottom-up uh, idea, because then you miss the long-term strategic impact that you also need in cities. You need these two worlds to work together, and the same goes for placemaking. So I, I would say you, you you should be able to find uh, placemakers inside municipal organizations, inside real estate developer corporations, and inside bottom-up initiatives. And I think the real change happens when they start working together. Yes, exactly. The the magic happens when people meet and collaborate. Yeah, so it's hard to say who should be responsible because if you're talking about systemic change, which I think we are. Uh, talking about here, then you need everybody on board, and you, you need the early innovators in 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 each of these uh, uh, elements, and then also in the universities and in, in educating the new generations of people working on cities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So how are you going to bring everybody to placemaking week? When is it? 
Yeah, well, uh, right now that's a bit tough to say, of course. Uh, we are working towards uh, 2021 right now. Uh, we are very dependent, of course, on uh, what the restrictions will be like. Um, we're uh, setting up ideas for digital uh, exchange. Um, we're setting up an idea for a post-COVID city right now with uh, uh, there's a group of people within Place Magyaric taking an initiative for this now. Uh, we're setting up a, a festival and uh, hopefully a conference for informal play. Um, so a lot underway, uh, but we're constantly, like everybody, thinking in two scenarios. What if we can do it live and what if we uh, need to do the, the digital, uh, need to do it a digital way. Uh, luckily, uh, we have invested a lot in the previous years to actually meet people uh, within Europe within the world, connecting with the Asian placemakers, with the Australian placemakers, with the networks from Africa and Latin, Latin America, the placemaking US and Canada. And that is the capital that we can now build on, that we can now use to, to uh, keep an open mind, to not just be only focused on your own home in your own neighborhood, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And also you have different animal meetings, like the city at high levels and so on. We've always um, wanted to, to be part of the global advocacy as well. Uh, and we've always invested in that. So we are uh, a social enterprise. Uh, we uh, do actual projects, consultancy projects, but then we reinvest that into these moments of sharing. And before we may have done a conference or a book, and now it's more the online uh, version. So again, you need to be creative and that's what we want to do. Yes, yes. And Hans, in this podcast uh, together with my guest, I explore what is a smart city. And I would really, I'm really interested and I would love to hear from you. How do you define a smart city? For me, a smart city is a city that taps into the, uh, the wisdom of the city itself, to, that taps into the creativity of the, of, the, of the city itself, that provides frameworks for uh, bottom up and top down to work together, that uh, aims at uh, this idea of self-organization and self-organization very often is misread as okay we can do nothing because the city is going to self-organize that's not how it works it requires a very active attitude from the side of the city council um, but it doesn't mean that you're you're the sole responsible group of people who are uh, coming up with uh, what should be in the agenda and, and, and then pushing the implementation as well. It means that you're co-creating this. It means that you're setting up systems for uh, others to join for. And I guess for every challenge there is in the city, uh, somebody in your city will have a part of the solution. Um, so rather than coming up with the solutions yourselves or rather than um, tapping into large corporates to impose those solutions because that's very often of course what the smart city becomes uh, a kind of a vehicle for large international corporates to take over parts of the public responsibility and then earn a lot of money on it um, and i'm not against technique at all and i, I think we need a lot of those techniques uh, as well uh, we need those companies as well we make use of them as well of course uh, but I really think a, a generally smart city is a city that taps into the, the knowledge of its citizens and, and is uh, aimed at, at you know, uh, combining the, the energy of citizens, providing new frameworks for activating citizens, for connecting citizens, for connecting initiatives from the city, um, and then 
combining bottom-up and top-down mechanisms. By the way, I'm talking about citizens, which is not entirely right, because I think it's more about all the stakeholders. Um, I think there's a lot of creativity uh, among real estate developers as well. And there's a lot of creativity among universities, among planning departments, among housing corporations, the more institutional organizations as well. So probably we should be talking about a whole range of stakeholders that you need to tap into and that you, that you need to, to address all the challenges in our cities, which are, you know, the, there are immense challenges in our cities right now. So for you, a smart city is more about this smart people, not smart devices and machines. Definitely, yeah. And what are the challenges that, that we are facing in order to become a smart city? It's like turning an oil tanker, I feel. <laughs> a lot of the, well, I don't know, context do you want to talk about? It makes a great difference, of course, depending region to region or even regions within Europe or outside Europe. Uh, so we work in, in Asia as well. We work uh, you know, in other parts of the world as well. But if you're focusing now on Europe, uh, as an example, I think a lot of the, the, the governments in the post-war decade um, were taking care of everything more or less, right? And then, of course, there's a big difference between uh, Central and East Europe and, and uh, Western South Europe again. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to generalize. But I, I guess um, there was this idea of the welfare state. And, um, and it, this also coincided with uh, uh, you know, for the, the relative European terms with fast growth. And somehow I think there's a relationship between fast growth in terms of quantity um, and uh, the a strong role of, of the, of the, of the government sector. So if you're used to doing that for the past 40 or 50 years, you're not going to change that system just in one day or in one year. Um, that needs time as well. And um, with everything we do, we find out that uh, it's you know it's in everything. It's in the culture. It's in the in, in the legal frameworks. It's in the way we distribute uh, funding, uh, the distribute our taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if you're starting to think about systemic change, then you you find out at some point you need to address all those uh, elements. So that's the the challenge really. And then of course there's very urgent needs in our in our cities. Um, there's the very urgent need to address the global capital flowing into our cities and uh, probably even more so now. I mean, what's happening on the corona, I think city, cities have a big opportunities and are facing a big threat at the same time as well, because um, who are going to benefit most from any crisis are the, the, the stakeholders with the deepest pockets. So we will see that a lot of the local formulas will find it very hard to survive in the, in the coming years, um, already now. Um, and they, the cities run the risk that, the, for instance, those properties will be bought up by large international conglomerates. So there is a big opportunity for cities now to come up with a vision uh, to organize, start organizing the networks, to start organizing different investment mechanisms because we already felt in Europe we needed to reinvent the, the significance of the, the city centers. They were already overrun, uh, over tourism. We were facing uh, with segregation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> actually there is a op big opportunity to reinvent those ideas now. But if you don't do that, then there is the big threat that it, 
things will happen for you and then they will probably not happen in the, in the way that you want them to go. Yes, exactly. Hans, what do you see? Are we going toward a smart city? You have so many valuable years of experience. Do you see we are cities in Europe are developing toward the smart city as the one you defined? Well, uh, in the growth of uh, networks like Placemaking Europe, and I think it's nice to point out that Placemaking Europe is not just bottom-up initiatives. It's a lot of people working for city councils, for instance, who want to change from the inside out. It's a lot of more and more people. Um, we partner up with the Urban Land Institute, who are the, the, the network for the real estate uh, uh, sector. A lot of these people inside the real estate sector are also actively looking for change and not just the people on the ground, but also the CEOs. Um, so, yeah, there is more and more uh, awareness and opportunity for this, I would say. Um, but we have to be aware of the mechanisms working against us at the same time. Yes. Um, for instance, there is more and more, you know, the, the cost of labor is more and more expensive. So more and more facades are being prefabricated to mention something super practical, but it leads to the situation where we fabricate our facades not on the spot, but we fabricate them somewhere in a factory and then glue them to the structure on the spot. And it leads to all these facades more or less being the same everywhere in the, in the, in the latest newly built projects, rather than tapping into the local circumstances, uh, creating human skill, fine grain, a variety, and etc. So. We need to yeah. be aware that these processes are going on. Exactly. So uh, what are the challenges that Stipo is facing now? Yeah, if we if you look at what we find important, I think it's a lot, yeah, right? Because uh, if, if you have a big passion for cities, then you, you don't want to restrict yourself to just one thing. One of the big themes we are working on is what we call place-led development, is to try to integrate this idea of city development and, and, uh, and placemaking and not see them as two separate things, but to integrate the values and, and to really develop areas, uh, do area transformation, area development from the point of view of human skill, uh, social life, uh, interaction between people, et cetera, et cetera. And the city at our level, right? <clears throat> so that is one of the big themes that we are working on. Another one, of course, is the uh, to include the, the users and the residents in the, trans the energy transition that we are going, in, going through. Um, we see a lot of um, top-down uh, ideas on how to make these changes, um, and we see a lot of technology available, uh, thankfully, but there's a big gap in, in actually reaching the, the local people who, who are on the ground to, to start making the change from the inside out uh, and to, to make it a, a, a to get to a shared sense of ownership and to tap into the energy and the creativity of, the, of the, the, the people in the neighborhoods as well. One of the big themes, of course, of our time is how to be more inclusive in, in everything we do and how to prevent this um, gentrification tendency that there is in cities and the, and the, the, the people, the vulnerable people, the vulnerable function being pushed out of our cities. So uh, in a lot of the uh, areas that we're working on, we're trying to create a, a ground floor area management model that will allow for more affordable uh, ground floor uses for the startups from the neighborhood, the local formulas, the creatives, the social amenities, the the, the maker spaces, etc. You know, the, the type of 
uh, functions that otherwise would be driven out of the out of the city. And, and these are the more practical ways to, to to build a more inclusive city, I think. Um, for instance, another example is um, we see there's a lot of um, vacuum now uh, between the challenges that our cities are facing and what the, the institutional partners can do. So we this kind of void in this vacuum, there's this new uh, initiative coming up, which we call the public developer. It's not a private developer that is only in it for the maximizing profit. And that is, of course, a cliche because more and more private developers luckily are looking more at the public side of things as well. But the public developer wants to develop the public qualities of the city um, based on a financial model. Um, but then a financial model that is a more fair model, maybe. Um, so uh, I think it's very important for cities to to grow that sector. And, and in order to grow that sector, you need to make them networked uh, and you need to provide them with a new financial infrastructure because when they knock on the door of a bank for a loan, um, uh, when they have found a financial model, very often they're denied or they're given only loans under too severe circumstances. So this is um, why I think it's, it would be very valuable to have a new financial investment infrastructure on a European scale, even um, such as a placemaking fund or, or a city maker fund. Yes, yeah, so, so many challenges, Hans. And that's the, just the beginning of it. <laughs> <laughs> we need the whole new season just to talk about the challenges, right? <laughs> I'm super inspired. Thank you so much for giving your time for the podcast, Hans. Very, very happy to, to be a part of this. And uh, yeah, we can do uh, uh, more specials if you want. <laughs> yes, of course. So what is the next step for you, Hans? Well, uh, actually, right now we are in the process of uh, developing a new city to level book uh, for ASEAN uh, with the ASEAN network, because the ASEAN network really liked the, the city at level principles, um, but very righteously, they said, we're kind of fed up with getting all the Western examples constantly. We have our own examples by now. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. So we uh, partnered up with uh, Think City in Kuala Lumpur, and they, um, together with them and with a lot of other partners uh, like iDiscovery, uh, Tempatical right now, we're developing this new book called The City at Eye Level Asia with 80 cases from Asian uh, countries. And it really shows that within their own context, uh, they are indeed finding complete new answers um, in terms of the climate, of course, which is different, the culture that is different, the pace of and, and the scale of development that are different. So um, that is super exciting to be working on right now. And it's super interesting also for us in Europe to, to read this book as well, to, to see what's uh, happening. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons we can take uh, both ways, I think. Um, and I think uh, in the globalized world, world, we'll see more and more of uh, the development mechanisms uh, being taking taking place there now, coming to Europe as well, coming to Africa, etc. So um, it's good to have this this uh, open eye for global learning while acting locally, which is really what we are interested in. We we want, want to devote 25% of our time abroad and 75% within the communities locally, of course, because that's where we can have the sustainable impact. Wonderful. Hans, thank you so much. And how would you like to summarize what we talked about and your reflection and three takeaway messages to all the people that are listening to you? Oh, dear. <laughs> I was hoping you would, you would help me there. <laughs> Keep aiming for the human scale. Think of the most vulnerable people in your city and be 
practical about uh, the way you can change the, the systems uh, towards that. Wonderful. And three hashtags for the episode. Hashtag city at eye level, hashtag placemaking X, hashtag placemaking Europe. Wow, you, I think you're the fastest one giving <laughs> hashtags. <laughs> and yeah, maybe uh, we can talk about that another time, but uh, we have this whole book and program, of course, about uh, how to develop the city with and for children called the city and eye level for kids, our future generations. So they maybe are the most important ones we can think of. Yes, wonderful. And I will give a lecture actually about cities for children in the Royal Institute of Technology. And I will use this book as a reading material. So I found it super wonderful. And again, thank you so much. It's a great book. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So thank you so much, Hans, and hopefully see you in the future in one more interesting episode. Thank you, Mustafa. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Please follow the Instagram account and subscribe to the YouTube channel for live talks. If you have any story that makes our city smarter, please contact me. And this podcast is produced in collaboration with Landscapes Logit, consultant company working with landscape architecture and urban planning and design in Stockholm. Well, I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.